This interview is part of Infamous Stop Pediaco online forum, a global conversation in which we learn together about how we can contribute to God's reconciling work in the midst of the realities of our world today. This year, we invited scholar practitioners from around the world to share their research, stories, and experiences on the topic of peacebuilding and conflict transformation from a lens of post-colonialism and indigenous Christianity. Hello friends, I'm glad that you're with us. My name is Renee August, here today representing the International Fellowship for Missionless Transformation, also known as Infamit. I also work for an organization called The Warehouse, which is based in Cape Town, South Africa. And we are very, very big cheerleaders of what Infamit is doing. This piece is part of the Infamit 2020 Start Bidiaco online forum, a global conversation in which we learn together about how we can continue God's reconciling work in the midst of the realities of our world today. This year, we invited scholars and practitioners from around the world to share their research, their stories, and their experience on the topic of peace building and conflict transformation from a lens of post-colonialism and indigenous Christianities. Today, we have the opportunity to hear from Martin Manyaho, who is talking to us about whiteness in Christianity and the decoloniality of the African experience, developing a political theology for Kenya. Hi, Martin, it's really great to meet you and thank you for being willing to have this conversation with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. So I'd like you to, as you introduce yourself, just introduce your topic briefly and then tell us how is it that you came to this particular conversation? Great. Thank you. My paper presentation is on the topic of uh, whiteness in Christianity and uh, decoloniality of the African experience, uh, seeking to develop a political theology um, for what I call Shalom in Kenya. Um, looking at the Christian experience in Kenya right now, and also with the other eye, uh, looking at the African experience, there are two inconsistencies. Uh, one, on the one hand, you have a flourishing church. There is literally every, in every corner of our country, there is a church. Um, um, so Christianity is blossoming in this country exponentially. Um, however, on the other hand, you find uh, failed social, human, uh, economic, political structures. Um, that, that for me creates a crisis. I mean, I cannot reconcile the two. How is it that the church is not speaking to these African realities that we are seeing. And so at some point I've gotten to uh, conclude that the church is missing its prophetic voice, um, um, especially onto the human, um, social, political, economic spheres. And it needs to be redeemed. We need to go back to that, having conversations about life as Jesus would. Um, however, I see a hindrance to doing that, and that motivated me to write this paper. And, but I couldn't just jump into what 
have failed the church in terms of uh, creating that um, uh, prophetic voice, I had to go back to history. And I started to learn that a lot of what we are seeing today, the silence in the church is emanating from its history. And that backdates the colonial and post-colonial era mm. where uh, white or Western missionary enterprise lived side by side with the colonial government that oppressed the people. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. So in between this, what I hear mm -hmm. is, um, I would say, an implicit understanding of who Jesus is. Yes. Because you didn't look at Kenya and just go, oh, religion is useless. Look at all these churches and look at what we're mm -hmm. struggling with. It, it yes. took you back into this engagement and seeking mm -hmm. out what faithfulness looks like. Tell us a little bit about that. Good. That, that's a very honest, um, um, a very honest um, analysis of uh, what I'm, I'm seeing is that yes, Jesus is known, Jesus is worshiped. Everybody calls upon Jesus um, in every street corner. We have um, from Grand Wars, cathedrals, calling upon Jesus to street preachers um, in the slums, all calling upon Jesus. But really, who is this Jesus? Is he the Jesus of Nazareth? Or is he a white Jesus? The difference is what I am investigating in this paper. Because on the one hand, we were given a white Jesus who seems not to be disturbed by the status quo mm -hmm. um, of, of people's existence and experience. But then when I look into the Bible, I see the Jesus of Nazareth who was disturbed you know, um, in his ministry, in his life, till his death, because of the inconsistencies and 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 the, and the and the oppression and the injustices that people are suffering, and actually in his own introduction in the Gospels, according to Luke chapter four, he announces his ministry as that of coming to set the people free, announcing freedom from the gates of his ministry. And so when those gates of his ministry flung open, he got into a confrontation with the state. And actually that led to his murder, to his murder on the cross, because he was murdered. He, he, he didn't just give his life, he was murdered because he stood up against the oppression of God's people. And so that's what I don't see. So I have this understanding of the Jesus of Nazareth in the scriptures, but yet the one who is being preached in the cathedrals all the way to the streets of our ghettos is a white Jesus who does not see pain. Wow, that's really, really exciting to hear. I, I noticed as you were, were speaking, you spoke about this theology of whiteness that that thrives on separation. Mm. As we look to decolonize our theology, what, what would you say are the essential things that we need to put back together again? What does, 
um, consiling or reconciling or reconstitution or connection look like in this work of decolonization? Well, very good question. Um, again, we need to go back uh, to the ancient Mediterranean Christianity, which was bathed in a very communal, um, collectivistic society where group mentality um, ran life. And so in the introduction of the gospel itself being brought to the people, it was for the saving of the world, of the people, uh, sometimes in groups, as a collection of people, communities, not just individuals. But then the, 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 the whiteness gospel, whiteness theology, takes us away from that communality, that communal setting, and, and, and individualizes the Christian experience. So you start hearing of talks about personal salvation, personal sin, which are completely foreign to the Kenyan context. Now, I find the Kenyan context very close to the ancient Mediterranean world. And so we have a lot in common and, and a lot to share. And so what we become as preachers, as ministers of the gospel, is that we become matchmakers. We take that which is in the scripture and look at our own contexts and we situate our people in there and their experiences where they find God, where God is saving communities. And by saving, it means a reconnection of the people back in their own communities where they find their identity, not isolating them from their communities. Because once isolated, that is where we become victims of our easy targets to oppression. Um, and, and that has been the, the strong points or the strongholds of whiteness. whiteness uh, separates the body and the soul. That's what I said in, in the presentation. Meaning, now we can suffer pain and yet find Christian, way, Christian ways of justifying that pain because of the promise that we have been given in the white gospel. That was never the case. Pain was pain. When Jesus saw pain, he empathized with it. He took time to see it. He did not wish it away using religious jargons and all these kind of theologies. He even wept at death, at the pain of death and the loss of it, what it brings to the humanity. So we need to go back to that point of unifying the soul and the body as one and not separate it. Then we'll begin to see oppression for what it is and also see the structures that cause it and sustain it and we can easily be able to speak prophetically to such structures, just like Jesus did. That is beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm wondering about this, this thing about connection. Mm -hmm. What would you see as this connection between whiteness and power, between domination and supremacy and this person of Jesus, especially the way Paul talks about Jesus as, as one who being in very nature, God, not using that positionality 
to his mm. own advantage, but making himself nothing, emptying himself of power um, mm. and taking on the nature of one who is least powerful. Um, mm. how, how do we think about Jesus in this Kenyan context right now that you describe mm. so eloquently? Um, and, and what do you think Jesus might look like or the person who imitates Jesus? What would that person look like in a Kenyan context today? Right. Um, if, if, if I remember, I can paraphrase um, someone who made a statement um, at a conference that I was in about um, whiteness and power. Um, is that, and the thing is that whiteness, um, he said, I think he said whiteness is capitalistic. It is essentially capitalistic. Um, whiteness is predominantly male. And whiteness is conveniently Christian. I found that to be very intriguing in that power and power play is all whiteness is about. Because when you're in a position of power, then you can wield it the way you want to the advantage of capitalism, to the advantage of those who run the state, those who run the world. But then looking at Jesus, and the gospel, looking at the letters of Paul, um, Jesus introduces another kind of power, a power that does not dominate or usurp itself, but a power that gives, a power that is radical, a power that empties itself, a power that seeks to give away so that others can be lifted. And, and that is the, 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 the heart of the gospel. That the heart of the gospel is that God is about giving us power. I think it's uh, Peter who writes in First Peter about this aspect of power. That we've been, we've been given power to do a number of things, to increase onto what we have, these good virtues and values, to keep on increasing in measure uh, so that we can become salt. Now that for Kenya means beginning to see salt, to taste salt in areas that have been fragmented in our society. In a society that is broken, in a society that is highly uh, uh, disenfranchised by corruption, we need to see that self-giving power from the church and from Christians back again so that people can be connected within themselves and begin to see each other as communities. Otherwise, with the division that is currently existing in Kenya, every man is living for himself. And society has turned to become a man-eat-man society. No longer where in the African, uh, in our African roots, people used to take care of each other as a way of cushioning and creating safetyness for each other, which is predominantly in the Gospels, in the Word of God. So we need to go back to that, 
tapping of power that is self-giving, that is self-emptying, that is selfless, one that is willing to give up itself for purposes of empowering the vulnerable, the weak, the widows, the orphans, the unemployed, because our country is uh, increasingly developing a population that is highly unemployed. We need power that gives that kind of a population hope. And I think that is the function of the Christian church. We must not give it up. We need to embrace it. And that we do by embracing politics, engaging politics in a manner that gives people power, not taking power away from them. Thank you yeah. so much, Martin, for that. It's just beautiful to listen to you. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious about what you think a Christian's role is in this work of politics, especially mm -hmm. since we've heard so many messages preached to us about a being apolitical and our work is to promote the gospel and what does the gospel have to do with politics? Now, I heard you say that whiteness is about neutrality. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder how this, um, this Jesus who is preferential to the poor and the oppressed, um, which is not neutral, and, and, and disciples of Jesus being involved in this work of politics, um, what would you say the relationship is between those things? How, how do you connect those two in your own faith? Great. Uh, that's a very good question. Thank you for asking it. Um, one, in the paper, I talk about uh, uh, two things that I recommend uh, for a Christian engagement with politics. And one, I talk about a radical detachment uh, from the past, the colonial, and at times, neo-colonial past, a detachment from it, and this I call a radical one because it means distancing or detaching ourselves from that misrepresentation of Christianity in the African context, in the Kenyan context. So, so that distancing um, is a political statement. It, it's a political activity. And it calls Christians not only to distance themselves from that dark uh, past, but also to positively self-theologize. You, you know about the, 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 the three selves of missions? I think they miss one piece, which is self-theologizing. Because if we are going to self-finance ourselves, self-propagate ourselves, then we need to also self-theologize ourselves. And that detachment is a political statement. That's one piece. On the other hand, I call also for a righteous engagement. Now this is where Christians must willingly, proactively engage in politics. And I say that as I go onwards to answer about what whiteness and neutrality actually is. So in that righteous engagement, I'm calling upon Christians to confront structures that 
create and perpetrate oppression because these structures are not by themselves. They may be non-human, but they are run by people, by human beings. And they need to be confronted. They need to be confronted through um, uh, radical calls for justice as Jesus would, because Jesus confronted Caesar in, in one way or another. Um, but also call upon Christians to tap onto African realities on the other part. And this means Africans, even African Christians running for political positions so that they can influence politics with the politics of Jesus. And Jesus himself was political. In his statements, he made very explicit political statements that confronted Caesar, that confronted powers that be, that confronted economic structures, that confronted religious structures that oppressed God's people. And so we must be like him in the African experience, in the Kenyan experience, by avoiding a, neutral, a, a neutrality that uh, turns um, a, a blind side on oppression. Now, when I say that whiteness creates a sense of neutrality, that actually means that it universalizes the truth in the sense that what is true in the Western countries is assumed to be true in the Kenyan experience. But we know that that is not accurate to say. And so we want to put aside that neutralization, that universalization of truth to create a political theology for the Kenyan people in the African experience for the good news and witnessing for Jesus Christ. In your paper, you talk about um, this idea of sin and what whiteness has done to our idea of what sin is. And that sin has become individualized and not seen as a corporate response or as systemic. Um, I wonder in this work of the supreme white supremacy movement you called Christianity or evangelization um, for a triumphalist God, what would it look like for us to not seek the victory of soul winning? Is there another victory? Is there another end then? to our Christian faith, if it's not the purpose of winning souls? Um, is there anything else to uh, win? Yes, there is. Rather than focusing on this personal sin that, 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 that needs to be conquered upon which one gains, uh, gains a ticket to heaven, and, and once that ticket to heaven, by implication means that ticket is secured, then we can live our lives the way we want, or we can uh, avoid seeing evil around us because we have a ticket to heaven anyway, we'll go to heaven. There is another goal 
to Christian evangelism. And that is seeing the glory of God within the communities. When we look eschatologically into the future in the scriptures, we see an image in Revelation whereby all nations, all tribes, all tongues will be before the King of Kings, will be before God, singing, praising, worshiping, adoring this God. Why can't we see that now? If we are uncomfortable with that reality, whereby seeing the glory of God that is envisioned in the book of Revelation, where all tribes, races, tongues, nations, in community with one another, if we are uncomfortable with it now, what makes us think that we'll be comfortable with it then? And so the goal of Christian missions ought to be a focus on unifying people around the theme of glory. And I say in the paper, we need to see an emphasis of more regal language than legal language. Because legal language makes us feel like we are in a courtroom whereby our destiny in that theology is being decided by one decision and, and then that's it, our fate is sealed. But in a regal kingdom, kingly um, um, language, which is really very a comfortable thing to talk about in the African context, in the Kenyan context at least, because I know that, we want to be associated with this royalty, with this kingdom language, with this kingdom aspect and worldview. When we, when we are comfortable with that, we know that is going to be our end when we see ourselves with our brothers and sisters from other tribes and other communities and other clans and other nations before this royalty. That is so beautiful. We need to get used to it right now. A question I have for you is, um, you talk about unholy alliance, the unholy alliance of the colonial project and the mission project. As we seek to redeem and restore these ideas of faithful discipleship, what would holy alliances look like and who do we make them with? And who would they exist between? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that one. So then what would be the holy alliances uh, between the, the Christian project of the church uh, and someone else? Who would that be? And my thinking is that alliance needs to be with the people that are for social justice, people that are for a just world. So this would be civil society movements that may not be necessarily Christian, but they can see the need for justice in our societies, in our communities. Why don't we have holy alliances with such groups? Why don't we have alliances with Black Lives Matters 
from, 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 from other uh, countries, from the US, even while we're in Kenya, to push a narrative that all people matter to God and that honors God. We need to also see an alliance between faiths and interfaith engagement with people of other faiths. How can we negotiate and navigate between the intricacies of having different religious backgrounds and theologies, but yet have a common goal of worshiping God and having his justice lived on earth as it is in heaven. Those are some of the holy alliances that I can imagine of. We can also have holy alliances with people that run the state, but not in a manner that seeks to contaminate us, but in a manner that seeks to transform unjust structures. Those are some of the alliances that we can engage in radically, but with holy intentions for purposes of seeing a just society and a just world for all. I have one more question. Um, mm -hmm. You speak about the disconnection of land and people being dispossessed from their land. If that came as a consequence of the doctrine of discovery, mm -hmm. what theologically then would we have to do about this particular doctrine? And, and what would repentance from that sin look like in your, in your mind? Thank you. Thank you for, for, for that question. If we can see whiteness for what it is, because that's one of the biggest challenges of um, contemporary Christianity is the inability to see whiteness in various sectors. And so to speak to answer this question, failure or the inability to see whiteness in Christianity, that makes me sick, um, uh, for lack of a better word. Because when you see a narrative that is being pushed um, to kind of generalize truth, across the world, the white supremacist agenda to quench other faiths, other thinkings, other perspectives, so that one of them could, can, can dominate over the others. That, that, that is devilish. That, that is not out of a pure heart. That is not a honest move, uh, so to speak. And so to counter that, I think we need to begin to create theological narratives that allow for um, uh, that allow for a, a multiplicity of thought processes that allow for um, accommodation of other people of other um, uh, backgrounds of other theologies that do not necessarily speak to our experience, but just the fact that we can give ourselves to listening to them is of importance. 
And so we need a creation of not only countering narratives, but also alternative narratives. Narratives that speak of what Christianity is for, not just what it's against, what Christianity is for, what Jesus is for. And we push those narratives repeatedly until they become now the norm within our Christian engagement with people of other faiths and people of other cultures. I have a few final questions for you. For those who are wanting to learn more about this particular topic, who else should we be listening to and which scholars would you like to refer us to or resources that you could point us to for those who would like to dig deeper into this particular topic? Great. Thank you. Thank you, um, Rene, for having um, me uh, respond to these questions. Um, I would say um, as far as creation or thoughts around political theologies in Africa is concerned, I would recommend um, Emmanuel Katongole, a Ugandan scholar and a theologian um, that is into political theologies and political theology in the African context. Um, his work has really profited my, my research and, and writing so far. Um, I'll also recommend um, one Sandra Freeman, uh, a missionary in uh, Botswana who researches around issues of honor and shame cultures and, and also as that is connected with the gospel and missionary work and being a missionary herself with a husband critiques a lot of um, um, the missionary project and, and what it did to the African people. And I think that has been a great resource uh, to me too. Uh, I'll also highly recommend that on, on matters regarding um, white supremacy and whiteness, you had me quote over and over in the, in the paper, uh, Willie Jennings, uh, one of his books uh, called uh, The Christian Imagination is, is a great resource. Um, also, one of my favorite, uh, James Cohn, um, um, an African-American theologian, uh, written the book on the cross and the lynching tree, um, has immense, immense uh, insights that point to us on what whiteness is and also the, uh, the, 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 the suffering of the black man. Um, also, uh, there is one, uh, Joseph Winters, uh, written on the hope draped in black, one of the resources, and also H.M. Dingy, who has written on black soteriology, the physiological and ontological processes. Um, then lastly, I recommend Dolores Williams, who's written a book on sisters in the struggle. And, and, and then like, the very, very last, is Janine Fletcher, who's written a resource entitled The Theme of White Supremacy. Uh, these are resources that I can recommend to us. Um, there are tons and tons of volumes on honor and shame in Africa, which is now a growing, a developing um, uh, uh, place of research and scholarship in theology. That is also 
an area that I would recommend people to look into. Thank you. And if people wanted to contact you or be in touch with you or your community, how could they go about doing that? I am, uh, of course, um, in some various uh, platforms of engagement. Um, I am not only a lecturer at Daystar University in the Department of Theology and Pastoral Studies, uh, but I also um, am in fellowship with associations uh, within our context, one of them being ASET, the Association of uh, Evangelical Theologians of Africa, um, which is based here in Nairobi. Uh, I, I, I consult a lot for that, that association and also present papers and attend conferences and plan conferences. Um, then um, um, my scholarship is um, available uh, in, in Google Scholar, if, if you look me up, Martin Munyao, you'll find it there. It's, it's usually on the issues of um, honor and shame theologies, um, on uh, theology and violence societies of Africa, and also on the issues of decoloniality in, in the African experience. How did you get involved with Infamit? Okay, um, actually, I, I came across Infomat on Facebook as a, as a suggested page. And I looked at it and it looked, it, it intrigued me. I looked at the first few lines and it talked about uh, Scott B. Diaco project. Oh, um, I, I thought I, these are two names that I'm very familiar with in terms of um, uh, my theological formulations, Scott uh, and and then reading alone, I thought this is something I would be interested in. And then I, there was a link that I had to click on that led me to uh, making a submission to this project. And, and I went on and um, you know, signed up, created an account and submitted a, a, an abstract. And uh, I got a feedback that I'll be contacted on the way forward. And later on, uh, my paper abstract got accepted. So that's how I came across Infamit. It was on Facebook. Wow, that's amazing. Martin, it has been wonderful listening to you. Thank you so much for your preparation, for your thoughtfulness, for your scholarship, um, and, and for inviting us into this conversation. I'm so deeply grateful to you for that. Mm -hmm.